Luke have already been written. So most likely, John's already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he's like, hey, there's a bunch of stuff they didn't catch, right? There are important things that they didn't catch, and I want to make sure to get that. So for that reason, John is actually 96% original. So if you were to look, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John, most of the book of John is stuff that's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a lot of overlap. But in John, most of it's original because he's probably all read all three, all three of the other ones. He's like, okay, I want to get some stuff that they didn't catch. And um, so, so that's some, some other things we can uh, understand about the Gospel of John as we move forward. Now, some a little bit of a biblical background. Um, one of the things, the first thing we're going to look at here is that Jesus is the Christ. So where is he getting this idea? Well, he's getting it from Scripture. Okay. Now, what was Scripture in the first century? So we call the Old Testament, right? So John is going to be showing and explaining how Jesus is the guy that's being talked about in the Old Testament. So to give you guys a little, to give us a little bit of a, of a background start on this, the, the way the Old Testament and the New Testament relate to each other, in the Old Testament, we are looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. We're looking forward to the coming of Jesus. In the New Testament, they're saying, oh, if you read the New Testament, it's all, hey, guys, Jesus is that guy. That guy that was in the Old Testament, that guy at the whole Old Testament, the guy we've been reading about for all these years, Jesus is that guy, right? So and we'll, as we'll see, that's what, exactly what John's doing. And as we go through this series, we'll see exactly how John is doing that, how he's doing that. So uh, another thing we need to know as far as about Scripture is that the Gospels are not just biographies. I think sometimes we, we think of the Gospels as just, these are stories about Jesus, right? That's not... Exactly, they're, 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 they're biographies with a specific purpose, right? As John shows here, he's got a theological purpose. He wants to tell you something about who Jesus is. So, um, so John has this theological purpose. Matthew as well has this theological purpose. Mark has a theological purpose. Luke has a theological purpose. In Matthew, it's clear as day. If you read the, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, it says, These were done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, saying, block quote of the Old Testament. Right? Over and over. It's like clockwork. Matthew is showing over and over. I want you guys to know that Jesus is that guy from the Old Testament because this is what that Old Testament passage said, and here's what Jesus just did. Look at that. There they go. Right? And so that's what Matthew's doing. He's doing the same thing. He's pointing out Jesus is the guy from the Old Testament. If you read Paul's writings, he's doing the same thing. Jesus is that guy. They're all pointing backwards, and the, all the Old Testament is saying, we're waiting for this guy. Where is he going? Right? And so uh, what we're going to do today... Um, so John wants to believe that, that Jesus is the guy from the Old Testament. So uh, what we're going to do today, though it's not going to be exhaustive, that would take days and days and days. I don't think we want to sit here that long. What we're going to try to do is we're going to give a brief glimpse into what the Old Testament is saying about who this guy is that we're waiting for. Right? So we're looking forward to this guy who is Jesus. Right? We're looking forward to this guy. So what does the Old Testament say about this? What, what is the Old Testament saying about this guy? So first of all, we're going to look at, we need to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Point number one, if you're an outline person, point number one is believe that Jesus is the Christ. The word Christ means Messiah. It's, it's, it's a Greek, the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. So if you've heard the word Messiah before, Christ and Messiah are the exact same thing. It means the anointed one, the chosen one, right? He is, he is the one through whom God is going to bring blessing. Right, so so uh, Jesus is the 
for so understanding Christ then is a title. It's not Jesus' last name, right? No matter what television says, Christ is not Jesus' last name. We call him Jesus Christ because he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. So that's what, that's what we say when we say Jesus Christ. That's what we mean. We're, we're giving him a, a title. We're showing he is the guy that was the promised one, the, the anointed one. So we're going to do a little bit of an Old Testament theology then. Uh, I want you guys to turn all the way back to the book of Genesis. We're not going to go verse by verse through the rest of the Bible, I promise. But we are going to start in Genesis because this is how early the gospel starts being proclaimed, how early Jesus starts being declared and starts being talked about. Now, if you remember from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God had created this perfect place for humanity to live. He created everything exactly like it needed to be. It was perfect. And he created Adam and he even said, live here. He created this perfect, wonderful paradise for mankind to live in. And he said, one thing, don't eat this tree. And what's the very first thing that he does? If you actually, if you follow it, it says God did this and it was good. God did this and it was good. God created this and it was good. God created man and woman and it was very good. And the first thing that mankind looks at and says is good is when Eve looks at the fruit and says, that looks good. Oh, come on. Anyway, so you haven't even gotten out of Genesis 2 yet, and we're already screwing things up, right? We're, we're barely into the Bible, and we're already messing things up. So Eve, Eve uh, eats the fruit, Adam, and she says she turns to Adam, who is with her. So Adam's sitting there right there, standing next to her. She eats the fruit and hands it to him. He says, okay, and eats the fruit, right? And then God brings a curse and things like that. But then God does not bring curse without a promise. This is the beautiful thing in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, this is the very first time the gospel is proclaimed. The very first time um, the good news of the gospel is proclaimed. He says, I will put enmity or struggle between you and the woman. This is, he's talking to the serpent now. This is the curse that God is bringing on the serpent. I will put a struggle between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You will bruise his heel. In other words, you'll do minimal damage, he'll do permanent damage. Right? So he says, so look at this. It says he, he, um, he's going to put uh, uh, the struggle between the woman. The, so basically there's a, there's a promise given that the offspring of a woman is going to crush a serpent's head. Okay, now if you continue through in Genesis, if you look at the way the genealogy, I know all of you guys love to read the genealogies in Genesis, don't you? That is your favorite part of the Bible. Well, here you go. Watch this. It's promised that the seed of a woman is going to crush a serpent's head, right? And if you read the genealogies, who are the people that are the people that are having offspring? It's all the man begets this guy, begets this guy, begets this guy, begets this guy. It's not the woman begetting anybody. Because those aren't the guys, right? We have this promise. There's a guy that's coming and he's important. So where is he? So you keep reading Genesis. Like, well, it's not him. It's not him. It's not him. Right? And that's just pretty much the rest of the Old Testament is you're waiting for where is this guy. You're finding out more about this guy. Now, let me show you how this kind of works. So you go through Genesis. You get to chapter 12, right? By the time you get to Genesis chapter 12, this guy named Abraham shows up. You're like, okay, well, maybe Abraham's the guy. Right? Because it takes this long pause and spends all this. It's been going generation by generation really, really fast. And all of a sudden, it stops and talks about Abraham. You're like, okay, maybe Abraham's the guy. Right? And then you get this kind of this focus lens, right? God, God gives this, 
is he makes a covenant with Abraham, and he says in verse uh, in verse three. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the same promise that, that God is going to crush the serpent's head. He tells Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Okay, so now we got a focal point. We're narrowed down. We've got all these people we've already heard about. We're narrowed down to Abraham, right? And it's going to be through him that we're going to find this guy. And as we continue through, we find out, well, it's not his kids. Um... Isaac, uh, Abraham does some pretty stupid stuff, and then he has Isaac, and then uh, you're kind of looking at Isaac for a while, and well, maybe it's him. Well, nope, it ends up not being Isaac at the end of the day, and then you have his kids, um, Jacob and Esau, and those guys are a bunch of, they're crazy. They're nuts. Esau's trying to kill, you know, Esau's trying to kill Jacob, and Jacob's sneaking around and trying to, trying to mess, with it, mess with Esau, and then it's just this whole bizarre scenario goes on. And then um, Jacob has uh, 12 children, if you remember 12 specifically, 12 sons, probably had many other children. He did have many other children besides those 12 sons. But if you go to Genesis chapter 49, now one of those sons you'll remember, before we get to Genesis chapter 49, which is brilliant. So Genesis uh, ends up, with, in looking at the sons of Jacob, it starts focusing in on this guy named Joseph. Okay, Joseph, he's got to be the guy, right? Look at Joseph. Isn't he awesome? Like he's he's battling sin and he's winning, he's conquering, he's he's being raised up as like the second in command over the people of Egypt. And and God even says, Your brothers are gonna bow down to you. You're like, well, this has gotta be the guy we're looking at now, right? But what happens in Genesis chapter 49? At the very end of Joseph's of the Joseph section, it gets to Judah in verse 8. Jacob is pronouncing blessings on all of his children, and he says, Judah. Your brothers shall praise you. Whoa, 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 whoa. I thought Joseph was supposed to be that guy. But no. The real Joseph, the real guy to look at was not Joseph. You need to look at Judah. Now, if you've been reading in Genesis and you've gotten to this point, it can't be Judah. That guy. He did some stupid, stupid stuff. If you uh, remember correctly, uh, I, I can't. I think it's Genesis 38. Um, it's, it's a really messed up situation. We're not going to go there right now. Judah does some really stupid stuff. So it's not that Judah, right? So we now we're looking for a guy who is like Judah or a guy from the line of Judah. And what do we find out about Judah? Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter, the kingly scepter, shall not depart from Judah. Sounds like an eternal king. Hmm, that's interesting. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and the donkey's colt to the choice to the choice vine. A friend of mine who's an Old Testament scholar said basically that's that's saying lighting a cigar with a hundred dollar bill. The same idea, right? It's you don't you don't tie a donkey to what's gonna make you money, your grapevines. You don't do that. That's asking for trouble. That's you're gonna lose money that way. Right? Um, he washes garments in wine and his vesture with the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So Judah ends up being declared he is going to be an eternal king. From the line of Judah is going to come this eternal king. Okay, we focus in on Abraham. We focus down to his son, to Isaac, and to uh, now we're down to Judah. Right? So now we've got to look through Judah. Okay? 
keep fast forwarding a little bit into Deuteronomy. Um, I love this. I love this stuff. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 18. So we, now we get some more information, right? There's, there's lots of other information, I promise you. But some big highlights here. Genesis chapter 8, or Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. says the, uh, This is Moses speaking. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So now we know there's a prophet like Moses that's going to arise, and we've got to listen to that guy. Okay? So now we know we got to find a prophet that's from the line of Judah, a guy from the line of Judah who's a prophet, who's a king, a king from the line of Judah, who's a prophet like Moses, right? That's, so we got that. We we're looking for that. Now, what about Moses can we be looking for? Just to give you a really brief couple of things, uh, if you look in the beginning, if you were to be in the beginning of Exodus, you would see that the, there's an evil king who declares that all the children should be killed, right? All the children under a certain age should be killed. That sound familiar? Maybe in the beginning of Matthew? As a result of this evil king wanting all of the children to be killed, uh, Moses' mother sets him adrift onto the river, and where does he float into? But Egypt. Does that sound familiar? Yes. After, after uh, King Herod declares that all these children under this certain age should be killed, where do Jesus' parents flee? To Egypt. Now, after Moses comes out of Egypt, right later in his life, when he leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, he crosses over the Red Sea. He passes through water, and they go into the wilderness for 40 years. Now, in the narratives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, except for Luke, Luke gives a couple of intervening, uh, intervening little, little pieces about Jesus' life. But most of the time, after this, this time after, the, after um, Joseph and Mary take Jesus and they go to Egypt, he comes out, and what happens next? He's baptized. He passes through the water, and then what happens after he passes through the water? He goes to the wilderness for 40 days. Huh. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is starting to look kind of like Moses now. Right? To this prophet like Moses that will arise. Fast forward some more to 2 Samuel chapter 7. I know we're going all over the place here. I love it. 2 Samuel chapter 7. So we've been looking for a prophet like Moses is going to arise. We've been waiting for this. We've been looking at the line of Judah. We've been waiting, looking, and watching. And now this guy David arrives. Right? In 1 Samuel, this guy named David. All the focus comes in on David. And you're like, okay, maybe David is this guy from the line of Judah that we're waiting for. This guy that we're looking at. But... David messes up pretty big time, doesn't he? And in, 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 uh, in, um, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David. And he says this, uh, looking in verse 12. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, so David's going to die. He's not an eternal king. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Did Solomon live forever? Did his kingdom live forever? No. So that's not the guy. But we do know this guy's going to come, and he's going to have an eternal kingdom, just like who was promised to Judah. Right? Now we've focused down. Okay, now we can look at David and his line, especially the line of Solomon, we can look at. And keep following this line. This is, this is why Matthew does this. In the beginning of Matthew, he's got this genealogy because he's reading his Bible, right? Saying, look, check out all these highlights, all these major points. This is what we're following. This is what we're looking at. 
This is how we know that Jesus is that guy. Right? And then in, uh, in 2 Samuel, after 2 Samuel, then you get, you get this, all these details that start, start opening up. In, in uh, Isaiah chapter 7, we find out that a virgin will conceive and bear a son. Well, that might be pretty obvious, wouldn't it? If a virgin all of a sudden has a, has, is pregnant, that might, that might be uh, unique, to say the least. Right? Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. In Isaiah chapter 9, a child will be born and the government will be on his shoulders. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's not my name. That's not any of our names. None of us are qualified, right? But there's going to be a child that will be born of a virgin that will have all of this, this titles, these names, right? In Isaiah 53, as, as Mike was so gracious to read for us today, Isaiah 53, we find out this guy is going to be crushed. He's going to be bruised. And he's going to be, all of our sin is going to be put on him. And what happens at the end of the Gospels? Every, all four of them bring up this. This guy, Jesus, who's this prophet that looks just like Moses? Who's this guy that's from the line of David? From all of this same line, all this stuff. This guy is crucified for our sins that we might have life. So that's just a snippet. That, I mean, that is seriously, that is such a small portion of showing that Jesus is the Christ. Next thing we want to look at is that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the second thing John says he wants us to see, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So what does that mean, that, that, that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, in the first century, just so you guys are aware, in the first century within Judaism, this is a radical claim. To say that somebody could be the son of God, that's bizarre. In first century Judaism, they, they, they did not understand about this guy that's supposed to come. They didn't get it. They didn't understand the Old Testament. They misunderstood the Old Testament to be about uh, rules and regulations and the people of Israel, and that's it. If you're going to be a son of God, it's only because you're a part of Israel, and that's it. It's not actually this, like an actual son of God. It's you're sons of God because you have the, you know, like, like, like as we talked about a couple weeks ago, like we are sons of God in our relationship with the Lord as we are Christians. That that's, that's about it, though. The, the God doesn't have a son. That's a ridiculous claim. It's a totally stupid thing to believe, right? But John says, I want to point out to you that Jesus is the son of God. Now, if you actually look through here, uh, through his writings, we'll see this. Um, but in, in John 3.16, every one of us can quote this. What does John claim? What is, what is claimed here? It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but everlasting life. His only begotten son. Jesus is the son of God. This guy is not just a human. He's not just some guy that's just wandering around. He is God in the flesh. Full deity, full humanity, God in the flesh. If you look at, uh, this is, so this idea that he's a son, it's not just this honored position. It's not just like a son as in one of many. It's not this idea that like mommy God and daddy God loved each other very much and had a baby. 
It's not like that at all. And in fact, as we go through the Gospel of John, we'll get to know more about what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. What does that look like? What does that mean? And get into a little bit of Trinitarianism, the idea of the doctrine of the Trinity, because that's what, I mean, John is, is very clear about it, about the doctrine of the Trinity, and we want to be, uh, we want to uh, tackle that as we hit it. A couple things to show that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, um, in Hebrews chapter 1, um, in Hebrews chapter 1, the author of Hebrews does a fantastic job of bringing this up. Um, and he quotes several passages of scripture. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, go quickly through uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 1. I'm not going to turn to all the passages. Um, but in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse, starting in verse 5, the author of Hebrews is talking about why is trying to explain to his readers how we know that Jesus is the Son of God. What does that mean? What does that look like? And it says, he says here, starting in verse 5, it says, For to which of the angels did God ever say? Right? In other words, he's trying to he's trying to explain, just to kind of give you a little insight on what's going on in Hebrews. He's trying to show that Jesus is better than angels at this part. And later on, he'll explain that Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the priests. Jesus is better than every, than everybody. Jesus is better than everything, right? That's pretty much the theme of Hebrews is Jesus is better. Um, in, in, in the beginning part, he's explaining how Jesus is better than angels. This, which the angels did God ever say? And he quotes Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Did God ever tell an angel, you're my son. Today I have begotten you. No! He didn't. No angel has this position. No angel has this relationship with the Father. Or again, uh, then here, uh, quoting out of Isaiah, or uh, out of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. This is right after that passage we read, our verse 13 and 14 of 2 Samuel 7. Right after that, God says, he will be a son to me, and I will be a father to him. Right? So the same God that's promised in 2 Samuel 7, this God that's going to have an eternal throne, God says, he's going to be a son to me, and I will be a father to him. Man, and the author of Hebrews says, what angels ever were told that? The answer is zero. And again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, continuing Hebrews 1, let all, let, all God's, let all God's angels worship him. Now, who is the only one who deserves worship? God is the only one who can deserve worship. So if we have, this author of Hebrews is saying then that this guy, Jesus, is God. He's not just an angel. You don't worship angels. You only worship God. It would be blasphemy to worship any angel. They're saying Jesus has to be God. And he has this relationship with the Father as Son. Of the angels, he says, he might make his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But the Son of the Son, he says, and this is uh, quoting here. Um, let me double check this. Quote. Uh, in Psalm chapter 45 and verse 6, but the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness and the scepter of your kingdom, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And, quoting out of Psalm 102, you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like garments, like a robe uh, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels did he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And that's quoting out of, out of uh, Psalm chapter 8. 
the scripture is clear. God has a son, and that guy, Jesus, that we find out about, he is that son. That there is a promised Messiah, and Jesus is that promised Messiah. Uh, 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 there's a, a late night talk show guy, you may have heard of him, his name is Stephen Colbert. He used to have a show on Comedy Central, and there's a, uh, a, a, a guy who's a New Testament teacher, he's a bad New Testament teacher, <laughs> he doesn't believe the New Testament. Um, but he was, uh, he, Stephen Colbert was arguing with him, he made this, it was probably one of the more fascinating moments in his, his entire time. He says, he says uh, explaining, this, this guy was denying, saying Jesus can't be the son of God, there's no way, that doesn't make any sense. And, um, and he says, the son of a duck is a duck, right? He's using simple logic here. He says, so if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, and raises the dead like a duck, it's a duck, <laughs> right? In other words, if Jesus does all these things that only God could do, what, who must he be? God, okay? Now, look again in John chapter 1. Now, in John chapter 1, this is just one chapter. Check this out. John chapter 1, this is during Jesus' baptism. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 29, it says, The next day he saw Jesus, this is John the Baptist, saw him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jump down. Um, John says this about Jesus. After, after the, the heavens had opened up and the Father says, This is my Son, of whom, of whom I am well pleased. Hear him. John says this about, about Jesus. He says, I have, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now again, if you can continue forward into verse 42, John has now just met Simon Peter, a guy, uh, you know, this guy named Simon, that is, uh, that, and, and Jesus, what does he do? He says, your name's no longer Simon. You're going to be called Cephas, which means stone, or is translated as Peter, right? Jesus changes his name. Now, is that, that, that might not be so significant unless we understood the Old Testament background of this. When God meets with a guy named Abram, what does he say? Your name's no longer going to be Abram. It's going to be Abraham. Now, one of, uh, it was Abraham's grandchild. His name is Jacob. Je after a night of wrestling with the Lord, God, uh, or, um, Jacob, uh, God, God tells Jacob, okay, your name's no longer Jacob. It's going to be Israel. Who changes names? Who changes people's identities? God does. And here we have Jesus doing that very same thing that God does. He also demonstrates omniscience and omnipresence. If you look in verse 48, uh, Nathaniel, uh, Jesus uh, meets, uh, meets up with Nathaniel uh, in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel said to him, How did you know? How did you know me? How did you know who I was? And Jesus said, Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, was Jesus standing right there? Probably not. I saw you. When you were over there, out of sight, and I couldn't see you, I saw you. Who does stuff like that? God. Who is Jesus? He's God. And that's just John 1. That's just starting the Gospel of John. He makes these clear declarations. As we continue through John, we'll see more of this unique role that he has in the Trinity. Third thing that John has asked us to do in John chapter 20 is that you, you may know 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So our third point today is believe in Jesus to have life. The Old Testament regularly speaks of Christ as the salvation of the nations. So what's this salvation? In Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 10, uh, verses 1 through 10, it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the presence of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2 lines this out so clearly. You are... When you were born, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. My son, Curtis, is almost five months old. He is the cutest kid in the world. I'm sorry. That is my objective opinion. He's the cutest kid in the world, but he is dead in his trespasses and sins. He's dead. One day he'll need to give his life to Christ. You're not born a Christian. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins. Every one of us are called to give our lives to Christ. Every one of us. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, as we've already seen. That he is the Son of God, as we've already seen. If you believe in that, if you believe that he is the Christ, if you believe that he is the Son of God, you can have life. So you're born and you're dead in your trespasses and sins. But that's, that's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus uh, lived a perfect life. The Son of God became a man, lived a sinless life, taught, did miracles, proved that he is the Son of God. But then he didn't stop there. He died. Because only a perfect sacrifice could bring salvation. He died. But it doesn't end there either. He rose from the dead, conquering sin and Satan and death so that you might have life. Amen. If you're here today and you have not trusted in the sacrifice of Christ, you have not made a conscious decision to choose to follow Jesus, I beg you to believe in him. The scripture urges you to believe in him so that you may have life. The opposite, if you, if you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, for life, then the opposite is true. And all that awaits is death. An eternal separation from God in a place called hell. And scripture, that's what scripture teaches. It's not pleasant to talk about. That's what scripture teaches. It's no coincidence that the focus of scripture is on Christ. 1,500 years of biblical revelation in the Old Testament matched perfectly in the person and work of Jesus. Do you believe that he's the Christ? Do you believe that he's the Messiah? Do you believe that he is the Son of God? Either Jesus, is, Jesus said 
claims in the Gospel of John that he is the Son of God. So either, Je either Jesus is a liar, or he's crazy, or he is the Son of God. Which do you believe? What do you believe about him? You ever trusted Christ as your Savior? Not your mom. Not your mom's Savior. Not your dad's Savior. Not your grandma's Savior or your grandpa's Savior. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. As we enter now into this time of invitation, ask yourself that question. If you're a believer and you have... Uh, Spend this time just worship who God is, who the Lord is. Um, worship Him. If you're not a believer, if you've not given your life to Christ, take this opportunity to do so. You can meet me at the front. You can come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to chat with you about that. Um, as, as Wayne leads us in an invitation, use that time as the Lord leads.